0: love society's missing peace i have been struck recently by the existence of two simultaneous movements across the world responding to the existential threats facing humanity one is based in love this means that it's centered on fostering connections in finding our intersections in understanding caring about and reducing our impact in embracing a spirit of forgiveness and compassion based on the pursuit of the common good For example, the rise in alternative spirituality, zen, earth seen as mother, indigenous shamanism, chakra or horoscope based ways of understanding and healing humanity. More practically, the tiny home movement and movements towards recognizing indigenous ways and returning to nature are other features of this emerging spiritual consciousness. Which is not to whitewash this mode of response as all good. It often lacks sense, critical thinking, and finds it easier to transcend harsh truths than confront and make sense of them. It also finds itself recklessly open and vulnerable to alternative and non-fact-based ways of thinking, precisely because of its desire to find other ways of knowing that are more spiritually wholesome. It forgives, but it doesn't necessarily understand the nature of what it is blindly forgiving. Some reality, it is less like truth forgiveness and acceptance and more like selective hearing. The other global movement is based in fear, therefore it is proprietal and hate-based, motivated by finding the perpetrator or bad guy responsible for an infringement on our rights and liberties and calling for their blood. We can see these fear-based modes of thinking practiced every day in the online, where people call out each other on mistakes in logic or message, Twitter arguments, Facebook trolling, meme posting reiterating the unacceptable acts of political correctness, correctness needlessly and dumbly interrupting the ways we live, which apparently seemingly are not broke and therefore not in need of fixing. Netflix adaptations of games, for example, seems to be a popular hot-button topic of rage. This character was white in the original text and Netflix recasts the same character as a different racial profile, an unacceptable misdemeanor. Another example of the movement powered by hate and retribution are the terrorism acts authored by incels, that is, involuntary celibates. Primarily men, this group and movement is characterised by their participation in online sites like 4chan and other dark web spaces where they are unified in their hatred of women and their seemingly orchestrated denial to provide them sex. The fermenting of hate on such message boards has unfortunately led to terrorism atrocities in America, Canada and across the world against women but also against other minorities. For example, in 2019, a young Australian man radicalised by far-right message boards where he posted a 71-page manifesto on his beliefs, stormed two mosques in Christchurch, live-streaming the murdering of 51 Muslim people. The incitement towards violence has also been a common feature of Trump-style rallies. Journalist Anna-Marie Cox describes her experience of one rally as filled with fear as a mob of 3,000 Trump supporters was incited to jeer at the 30-person strong press gallery. According to Cox, the energy of the rally was electric, the chants of lock her up, gleeful and lusty, a hate for faggots and gays, blurred and amalgamated with more racist or sexist chants. Though her experience with this mob sentiment was IRL, it is a typical feature of hate based othering that is fermented online. One feature that the online offers is de individuation, that is, a state of group participation where people feel both aroused and anonymous, which leads to a reduction of the typical constraints against deviant behaviour. This social phenomenon was particularly studied by psychologist Zimbardo between 1959 and 1969. In his experiment, Zimbardo found that two identical cars, both with their plates removed and hoods up, had very different outcomes dependent upon where they were parked. One parked in a small town where everyone knew each other was untouched except one resident put the hood down when it began began raining. The other was parked in the Bronx, a shady part of New York City prowled by gangsters, where it experienced 23 separate incidents of vandalism. In 1979, Johnson and Downing emulated another Zimbardo study which tested the length of electric shocks participants would give to unknown victims, with the participants of the experiment either dressed up as the Ku Klux Klan and therefore anonymous, identifiable as themselves or dressed up as nurses. The study found that those dressed as the KKK gave the most frequent and longest duration electric shocks, and this was again attributed to deindividuation. That is, the combination of anonymity, arousal, and diffusion of responsibility. So how did we get to a society so overwhelmed by fear-based thinking and acting? According to Robin Grill's Psycho History of Western Civilization, Parenting for a Peaceful World, violence has been a feature of our societies for over 2,000 years. Grill writes, much of the history of childhood in the West is a hellish tale of widespread and abuse. And the further back into history we look, the more brutally we see children treated with abusive practices institutionalized or embedded in cultural or religious rights. Grill describes six stages of parenting throughout the ages, starting with infanticidal, that is, the common practice of child murder that was a typical feature of parenting. Infanticidal societies were and are characterized by high rates of socially condoned infanticide, particularly through child sacrifice, incest, ritualized mutilation of children, and large-scale use of children as slaves and sex objects. In Western civilization, this mode dominated from ancient Rome through to approximately the 4th century AD. The other parenting modes Grill discusses are abandoning 4th to 14th century, ambivalent 14th to 18th century, socializing 19th and 20th century, and helping mode 1970s to present day. Grill's main argument is that human violence can be traced back to how a child was raised and how much love they received throughout their childhood, and he paints a picture of an evolution of western society from fear towards love in our relationships with our children. There are many notable acts of violence he details regarding an uncaring parent towards their child, from simple abandonment, to neglect, to harmful wet nursing practices, placing chastity belts on children to prevent them from meeting perverse sexual urges, to swaddling babies so tightly that they are then able to use that swaddling to hang that baby on the wall so they could leave that child unattended, often sitting in their own urine and faeces for hours. These acts seem obscene to us in a modern-day setting, so there is no doubt that our parenting methodologies have become dramatically kinder. We can get a window into what conditions for children might have been like at that time. In 1990, Romania's orphanages made world news for their atrocious living conditions. At that time, Nicolae Q was dictator During his 24-year reign, he made contraception and abortion illegal and celebrated women who had 10 or more children as heroin mothers. The uptick of child abandonments into state care was massive. Huge orphanages were built where factory lines of nurses swaddled children, gave them a bottle with a wider nozzle that could accommodate watery gruel, and then left them without any loving contact or access to play severely retarding their emotional and intellectual development. Children with injuries or unrecoverable conditions were then transferred to Camin spital, a hospice of sorts, which they were as likely to die in as to reach adulthood. Children in these conditions were described as living in overcrowded conditions where they, according to the Atlantic, endlessly rocked or punched themselves in the face or shrieked out-of-control children were dosed with adult tranquilizers, administered through unsterilized needles, while many who fell ill received transfusions of unscreened blood. Hepatitis B and HIV AIDS were rife. The news crew who discovered these conditions described the following, we walk into a pitch black, freezing cold building and discover there are youngsters lurking about. They're tiny but older, something weird, like trolls, filthy, stinking. They're chanting in a drone-like way, gibberish. We open a door and find a population of cretins. Now it's known as congenital iodine deficiency syndrome, untreated hypothyroidism, stunts growth and brain development. I don't know how old they were, three feet tall, could have been in their 20s. In other rooms, we see teenagers the size of six and seven-year-olds with no secondary sexual characteristics. There were children with underlying genetic disorders lying in cages. You start almost to dissociate. Modern neuroscience has found that early childhood exposure to violence can lead to neurotoxic cortisol being released within the brain's empathy centres, leading to cerebral cortical atrophy and the creation of psychopathic-like constructs in the way someone is able to relate to others. Brain volume is also shown to reduce and motor and language development can stall. Children need love. Very bad things, spiritually and physically, can happen to growing minds and bodies without receipt of it. After the fall of the SESICU regime, Western child experts and researchers moved in to answer the question, can a person unloved in childhood learn to love? Many orphans were rehomed in loving families. Experiments done with these children on their attachment styles found that those in institutions had no attachments. They were miserable but had no concept that another human being could even help. One child from the Romanian orphanages was adopted into an American family. His name was Isidore and he was covered by the Atlantic at age 30. He is described as having had black moods which would come over him and lead him to destroy things in his new home. He shredded books, posters, family pictures and then stood on the balcony to sprinkle the pieces onto the yard. He never laughed. He didn't like to be touched. He was angry about everything, vigilant, hurt, proud. The manifestation of these callous, unemotional traits was eliminated if a child was adopted out of the institution before the age of two and significantly reduced if a child was adopted out before the age of four and a half years. This story is not normal for Western civilization and is certainly an extreme example of what a deficit of love can do to a child. However, there are many fear-based structures and ideologies that still operate in our society in such a way that they impact on our daily lives and guide our value systems. In some places, condoned by our value system or otherwise willingness to look away, conditions like these exist within our institutional structures in Australia. Conditions for refugees and asylum seekers seeking entry into Australia are horrendous. Many have set themselves on fire in protest to the torture they experienced and are still experiencing in the offshore detention centres on Nauru and Manus Island. These centres were reopened in 2012 by Australia's Labour government and have since seen dozens of suicide attempts and 12 deaths as of 2019 according to RefugeeAction.org. On Manus Island, a tropical island with single men are kept, attacks and murders have been perpetuated by guards and PNG locals on refugees. Injuries sustained from these attacks include destroyed eyes, a bullet to the hip, near loss of an arm following a machete attack and a fractured skull from a metal rod. Compounding these experiences have been multiple outbreaks of typhoid and malaria. On Nauru Island, families live under plastic sheets in marquees, with no easily accessible toilet or kitchen facilities in 40-degree heat. Nauru refugees have also experienced bashings, robberies and rapes from locals who blame them for taking their jobs. The reasoning behind the treatment these refugees receive, most of whom are brown-skinned, is as a disincentive for choosing Australia to illegally emigrate to. Refugees, by definition, are escaping unlivable conditions from their home country, which may be war-torn or where they are otherwise in fear for their life if they remain. The strategy in place is to make conditions so bad in Australian processing centres that most of these refugees choose to be flown back to the country they were escaping. Then Prime Minister Tony Abbott made the commitment on August 15, 2013, that no asylum seeker that arrives by boat will ever get permanent residence in Australia. Therefore, many of the people on these island processing facilities have endured these conditions for over eight years, having committed no crime. Paradoxically, as pointed out by Shadow Immigration MP Christina Keneally in 2019, nearly 100,000 asylum seekers who had arrived by plane have received settlement, with 90% of these people being trafficked to Australia for the explicit purpose of being exploited, either as part of the sex or slavery industry. The point of MP Keneally's comments was to point out that the coalition government had lost control of the border unless to call for a reimagining of how asylum seekers who arrive by boat are treated. These men have committed no crime and do not deserve the punishment meted out to them. But who does? Ted Grimsrud, professor of theology and peace studies at Eastern Mennonite University in 2002, writes about the punitive philosophy underpinning Western systems of justice. In his writing, he urges the need for treating each other with love in our systems of justice. He attributes the retributive agenda that our current penal system has to our Christian roots. Given the religious roots of Western culture, this understanding is to a large extent rooted in a particular understanding of God as ultimate reality, retribution is needed to satisfy the need God has that violations be paid for in pain. The use of imprisonment as punishment further superimposes the veneer of science on the output of retributive pain. This crime demands this scientifically formulated amount of pain to meet justice. Jail is well known to be dehumanising. Statistics show that people who go in for petty misdeeds often emerge much more fully integrated into a criminal network. But our fear-based worldview sees no other viable option for remediating sin than to overpower that person with the power of the state, now having taken over from religious institutions the role of administration of pain, and coerce them through use of fear. In contrast to this approach a more restorative way of practicing justice is practiced by different cultures of the world. For example, Snopes details an African tribe in Ghana who when someone does something wrong they take that person to the center of the village where the tribe surrounds him for two days and says all the good things that person has done. The tribe believes that each person is good but sometimes people make mistakes which is really a cry for help they unite to reconnect him with his good nature. A system-based view of love and fear finds that when an individual or group commit an act out of fear, punishing that act with more fear only increases the behavior that you seek to disincentivize. If something is caught, for example, in a positive feedback loop, you interrupt this cycle by introducing the opposite element. In this case, love can interrupt a fear-based feedback cycle and transform it into a love-based cycle. I also frame it conceptually as solving an equation. To remove a negative on one side of the equation, you have to add that sum to both sides and vice versa. Justice, therefore, can be framed as an intellectual puzzle, albeit one that deals with real pain. Grieving is an appropriate response. Further punishment, less so. But this is a love-based conception of justice. A fear-based one is opposite. It speaks in negative and positive reinforcement of behaviour and says if we reward this behaviour, that individual will know that they can get away with it. The urge to punish comes from our own pain and our own blindness to our connection to one another. When we hurt each other, we inevitably hurt ourselves. With regards to positive and negative reinforcement of behaviour, this way of envisaging human psychology with no role for an intervening internal component was the feature of the psychological movement of behaviourism pioneered by Watson and Skinner that dominated the 1920s to the 1950s. In fact, John Watson was president of the American Psychology Association, APA, established in 1892. The APA still exists today and is responsible for publishing the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders, a manual that details and contains all mental health pathologies by their symptom clusters and the type of medication needed for their treatment. John Watson is an early perpetuator of the blank slate myth that is, that an infant is born with no internal mental characteristics and so is purely a product of his environment. In 1924, he famously stated, give me a dozen healthy infants, well-formed, and my own specified world to bring them up in, and I'll guarantee to take anyone at random and train them to become any type of specialist I might select. Doctor, lawyer, Artist, merchant chief, and yes, even beggarman and thief, regardless of his talents, penchants, tendencies, abilities, vocations, and the race of his ancestors. Inspired by Pavlov's conditioning experiments, where a dog was famously taught to salivate at the sound of a bell, having been trained to associate it with food, Watson designed an experiment where he trained fear into a small boy. The Little Albert experiment took a nine-month-old infant and gave the little boy a white rat to play with. Little Albert at first got along very well with the rat, but after six sessions of conditioning where the presentation of the white rat was paired with a loud noise, Albert learnt to fear the rat, crying upon its presentation. Conceptually, the rat was the conditioned stimulus, or US, the loud noise was the unconditioned stimulus, or UCS, the crying was the conditioned response, CR, and the presentation of the rat without the loud noise still eliciting crying was the UCS eliciting the CR, signalling the experiment as a success in demonstrating Watson's behaviourism theories. Today, the idea of a blank slate persists in the inherent ideologies of neoliberalism. Naomi Klein's 2007 book, The Shock Doctrine, The Rise of Disaster Capitalism, is a powerful read and details how Milton Friedman advocated a pro-corporate and hyper-predatorial approach to societal disasters, either manufactured or natural with the intention that such disasters enable a rewriting of the acceptable norms of that society. Klein starts with a powerful analogy of disaster capitalism, that is, of an orchestrated attempt by the CIA to secretly experiment on mentally ill patients to see whether it was possible to return a human to a blank slate via use of electroshock therapy. This was carried out by Scottish psychiatrist Ewan Cameron in the 1950s towards the end of the behaviourism movement. The experiment involved heavy drugging of these patients with potent psychoactives, LSD, Thorazin and more, sensory deprivation overlapped with use of bright lights and loud noises, drug-induced sleep or insomnia and prolonged electroshock treatment. Though the experiments had limited success in rewriting the personalities of patients, they did become the template for torture methodologies later used in such places as Guantanamo Bay. With regards to disaster capitalism, pro-corporate neoliberals treat crises such as wars, coups, natural disasters and economic downturns as prime opportunities to impose an agenda of privatisation, deregulation and cuts to social services. The philosophy behind this is that such events would create a period of public disorientation which pro-corporate reformers could use for their benefit as a vehicle for pushing through otherwise unpopular free market measures. These methodologies have been used to great impact in Chile under Pinochet 1973 to 1989, in post-Soviet Russia, in post-Tsunami Sri Lanka, and in post-Katrina New Orleans. In all of these places, neoliberalism has delivered enormous riches to the top 1%, while systematically disempowering, both financially and ideologically, the remainder of each society. It is the 21st century continuation of cultural and fear-based colonialism. There's a great movie scene I often reflect on when thinking about the race for riches at the expense of humanity. It comes from the 2002 film Ghost Ship, directed by Steve Beck. The plot of the film is relatively simple. A modern-day boat salvage crew discovers a deserted ship thought to be lost sunk 40 years ago. Of course, the ship turns out to be haunted, and a little girl from this ship leads one of the crew members into a vision of the atrocities that occurred on the decks. It's pretty gory, one of the involving the dismembering by a wire of passengers, administering of poison into soup, firing squads, the little girl is hanged in her own cupboard with a teddy bear. We find out that this has occurred because there are boxes of gold present on board and it's all a means for a few select crew members to enrich themselves. But everyone ends up dying bloody and horrific murders. The end. I identify with this movie scene for a couple of reasons. First, the scene where the murders are happening feels like my own personal awakening and growing awareness and heartfelt horror to the atrocities going on in the world. I am made hysterical by it. In the movie, scene, the little girl screams and her ghost self winces at this outward display of emotion, the only thing that the ghost responds to emotionally in the whole scene of carnage. And I relate to that too, you have to keep a rational and academic tone in order to be an accepted message bearer. Hysterical emotions help in the release of neurosis, not in identifying a solution state back to Watson. At the time he was conducting his blank slate experiments, there are a few criticisms. For one, the experiment had insufficient follow-up. How do we know that the fear response had a long-term impact on little Albert? Secondly, the experiment had low external validity. There was only one subject and no statistical controls. And lastly, the data taken was anecdotal and based on subjective observer accounts. The irony present in the lack of rigorous empiricism in Watson's experimentation is that the movement of behaviorism was in some ways a reaction against the psychoanalysis tradition that preceded it. Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung were the leaders of this psychodynamic tradition, which was later criticized by both Watson and Skinner as being unscientific. Both Jung and Freud theorised on the existence of a conscious and unconscious. Though Jung took this further, and borrowing from Hindu Vedic traditions of thought, also theorised on a collective unconscious. The crux of this theory is that the world that we live in is conceptualised as Maya, that is, an illusion, which seeks to fool us into thinking we are all separate when in fact we are energetically all connected. It is these spiritual traditions that have led to the new age revival of conceptualizing chakra-based energies making up our subtle bodies, manipulable via the Chinese tradition of acupuncture, which traces meridional zones, reiki or distance healing affecting a person's experience of Manipura and Kundalini. Jung borrowed a couple of concepts from physics. These are the principles of opposites, the principle of equivalence, and the principle of entropy. The principle of opposites states that the energy of drive in the psyche comes from the contrast between two opposite thoughts, in the same way that an electric current flows between a negative and a positive pole in a battery. Therefore, our thoughts and emotions are dynamic. They contain a duality, a term taken from philosopher Hegel. For example, thinking of someone as good, something as good, suggests the existence of bad. Up signals down, kind signals cruel, and so on. It's a philosophy that for energy to flow, we need to embrace total forgiveness, because any limit on infinity is fear-based. This is also supported by the third law of motion in physics, that is, for every action in nature, there is an equal and opposite reaction. For example, the response of a fear-based theory of behaviorism to a love-based theory of psychodynamicism. The principle of equivalence I won't go into, but the principle of entropy relates to the tendency of energy to become evenly distributed over time and space. Another physics law states that in an infinite system, energy can neither be created or destroyed, only conserved and transformed. To me, this makes possible that love is simply the transformation of fear into pure energy, higher vibration and lower density, and fear is the freezing of love into mass, lower vibration and higher density. By way of support for this hypothesis, let's turn to Freud, who covers the tendency of energy to get stuck or trapped in the human body and mind, something he terms as neurosis. This occurs when a person is faced with some aspect of reality they cannot accept, and so forces their will on that aspect of reality, creating a fear-based construct. This fear, once trapped in the body or mind, creates maladaptive emotions or thoughts that can lead to maladaptive actions. Remember Jung's opposites being a mechanism for creating drive. Emotionally, trapped neurosis can lead to numbing, only penetrated by feelings of anger. Remember the orphaned boy from Romania whose whose childhood led to destructive outbursts later in life. If we think about fear as eliciting a fight-or-flight response, this destructiveness can be perceived as a form of fighting. Cognitively, trapped neurosis can lead to amnesia, hysteria, doubt, rumination, and compulsive behaviours. I must do this or I mustn't do that. The way we treat each other when under the influence of our own neuroses contributes to a positively reinforcing cycle of neurosis building. A neurosis is basically a lie. It's an inability to see the duality inherent in every aspect of our reality and by placing a limitation on that reality, which forces it to freeze instead of flowing. Freud gave a number of ways to spot neuroses. These are Freudian slips, resistance, simplification, transference, displacement, transforming introjection or projection, disguising via rationalisation, sublimation, suppression, or reaction formation, reversal into the opposite or undoing. There are powerful ways of releasing neuroses. Emotionally, this can be done through abreaction. That is reliving emotional trauma in a safe environment which facilitates the expression of hurt. Cognitively, this can be done by a realignment of thoughts that brings two seemingly contradictory elements together in such a way that it relieves cognitive dissonance. It is my belief that teaching is the most powerful form of healing as it realigns our thoughts, the source of belief, reality creation, placebo, and nocebo. The energy of neuroses is released via a number of mechanisms, laughing, crying, burping, Farting, yawning, sneezing, and orgasming. Once we release our neuroses, we speed up and streamline our subsequent cognitive and emotional processing. Brene Brown has touched upon many of these elements without explicitly naming them as love or fear based in her viral TED video, The Power of Vulnerability on YouTube. In this video, she tells us to unnumb, to become aware of our bottled up emotions. She tells us that vulnerability takes courage. She tells us to show up face fear and move forward, and she tells us to dare to be ourselves because it is only through relieving us of our shame that we can truly connect with each other and, I would add, our connections to our truth and to nature. Robin Grill has a very powerful way of describing shame, which is that we believe that it is our self which is deficient and not our actions. It is a really powerful parenting tool that can create surface obedient children but is the mother of all fears as once a child believes that they are inherently wrong, they are taught that there is nothing they can do to be worthy of receiving love. Shame blocks us from loving ourselves and if we can't love who we are, we have no chance of loving anything or anyone else so all that is left to us is a destiny of self and world-destructive fear. But it is shame that is the lie. We are all worthy and we are all deserving of love. The fear is that on our journey to more self-knowledge, we learn firsthand of all our limitations and lack. I am my own personal journey through fear and proof that the opposite is true. It is possible to relate each other through our strengths and not our weaknesses. In fact, we are all infinite and so it is the only way of truly relating. Fear is insidious in Western society, and it is within the logic of every current structure we have. Once you learn how, it's pretty easy to spot a neurosis in action. I'll run through a few examples below to illustrate my point. Remember, forgiveness and love is the best mechanism for freeing energy that has been stuck by fear, and we are not the actions we undertook when we were frightened. Number one. Let's look at the impact of growing militarisation on our societies and our collective feelings of numbness. I say growing because the percentage of taxpayer money dedicated to the USA's military has fluctuated to between 45 to 90% of its total budget since World War II further it has been the military globally that has been the origin of most of the groundbreaking technologies of the 20th and 21st century many of which still leave toxic legacies of climate change and overexploitation of resources this militarization and mechanization of our lives has led directly to the growth in surveillance technologies disguised as social media and also relates to the general conditioning throughout throughout our societies, rewarding our capacity to conform into the various bureaucracies that govern our lives, be it in institutions of education, medicine, government, science, countless private industries, or the military itself. A quick search on Google yields a description of the typical daily military routine, comprised of 14 separate activities over 16 hours, each regimented into strict times and including physical training, drills and studying. The other outcome of a militarized habit of mind is an attitude that is uncritical of superiors, trained to instant action and is otherwise a perfect example of mechanization and strict hierarchies of control. Another feature of our invisible militarization and mechanization of society has been of growing velocity. I recently read a book from the early 2000s, The Middle Mind by Curtis White. In it, he states, to live a life substantially mediated by technology is to live in a world that has no endurance, that is constantly disappearing. The images on the TV do not linger, they disappear. The world outside your car window does not linger, it vanishes. It is the opposite of what Buddhists call the meditative equipoise. One does not live in the moment. One is being slung into a constantly accelerating future. Faster is better, we think, just as every military general has thought. Velocity is the common term between quotidian life and the logic of military need. Speed is the antithesis of intimacy. The difference between a tennis racket hitting countless balls instead of forming a relationship with them, exposing them to due consideration and care. Programmed actions and mechanised responses destroy our relationships, environment, and human potential. Google Dictionary defines mindfulness as a mental state achieved by focusing one's awareness on the present moment while calmly acknowledging and accepting one's feelings, thoughts, and bodily sensations, used as a therapeutic technique. Mindfulness is used as a technique to ground people, to bring them into the present, slow down their thoughts, align them with their sensations, and in that way calm the anxieties created by an overactive mind. It is the very antithesis of velocity. Another example of fear-based societal operation We live in a transactional society and I think such account-taking based thinking is a natural product of the type of mind habits primed by how to be successful in our society. Curtis White shares a great anecdote about having to replace a part in a faulty printer, which he does incorrectly, only realising this after returning to the manual for further instruction. He asks, what habits of the mind are our machines training us in? Another question I would ask is, what habits of mind does our society reward? Fear-based ones, star. For example, while the arts are being defunded in Australian society, humanity degrees raised to twice the price of science-based ones, and young people known to be the leaders of the climate change protest movement are being starved of opportunities for housing or a living wage, careers in STEM and all technical industries are flourishing. These people are seen to contribute real skill to the system, all without, and this is the important one, providing a deeper insight or criticism into the nature of a creepingly oligarchical and authoritarian power structure of the hyper-connected, globalised world we find ourselves in. These people have worth, we all do, but current models of positively reinforcing their non-critical compliance in fear-based societal operations heals all the way back at to Skinner's behaviourism and blank-plate philosophies. Another example of the pervasiveness of fear-based thinking throughout our society are relationships with our body. Naomi Wolf's 1990 *The Beauty Myth was another formative book for me. In it, Wolf makes the following arguments. Beauty industry is formed as a response to the power recently acquired by women entering the workplace. They work to replace the institutional limitations experienced by women with a sense of shame, the type previously given by premarital sex before contraception. The ideal standard of beauty for women, what Woolf calls the iron maiden of thinness, is approximately 25% below the natural female weight and is not beautiful aesthetically, she is beautiful as a political solution. The genius of female obsession with body weight is that it forced women to project all their power inward in a form of self-monitoring. Indeed, what was happening was a reconditioning of female self-worth as equated to their size as as determined by an arbitrary standard. This solution is made more powerful because it made women responsible for monitoring their own repression with the consequence of shame for failure. Further, conversations about weight are made mainstream so women, and increasingly men, are given little sense of privacy or respect if they instead choose to value their non-shallow qualities or practice self-acceptance for a natural body. A diet is, in itself, another mechanism of control. A study cited by Wolf is undertaken at a university using male participants whom are placed on a diet of between 800 to 1600 calories, the same as wool rations. The effects of this caloric deprivation are rumination over food, psychological vulnerabilities to suggestion, dull cognitive resources, loss of sexual appetite and loss of reproductive ability. Wolf also makes note that many aspects of personality that are traditionally associated with female hysteria are explainable by the mental and physiological impacts of the depri- deprivations of dieting. Another great and confronting movie scene comes from the 2006 film Silent Hill, directed by Christopher Gans. The plot is that a child goes missing in a now deserted town of Silent Hill and a mum goes in and faces all manner of her fears in order to find her. The fears themselves seem to be from the townspeople who have turned on each other, committing a history of atrocities to one another because of the growing fears that cloud the town. The scene I am referring to occurs in the basement of an abandoned building where many animated corpses of nurses, bearing shanks surreptitiously tucked into fists, face the protagonist, alerted to her presence by the light she is carrying. Their urge is to stab her, and they, in fact, just as mindlessly stab at each other. Anything that moves or has a pulse is detected as a threat to be stabbed. So the protagonist does the unimaginable. She blows out her light in order to escape the scabbing unscathed. I also related to this scene. Speaking love is just as likely to get you attacked by people who are attached to their fear-based neurosis. Sometimes you just need to dim your own light to survive it. The nurses' faces are closed over at the mouth. They can no longer communicate. Skin folds or bandages cover their eyes too. They can no longer see properly. They are all rail thin, wearing heels they totter on in short dresses that totally expose their legs and an undone button that shows their perfect zombie cleavage. To me, Gans is making a pretty powerful statement about the beauty industry by dressing the nurses in such a way the implication is that the rising obsession with the perfectioning body coincided with the madness of hate and fear that gripped the town. The nurses turned on each other and continued to stab at each other mindlessly in this scene, all whilst perfectly conforming to fear-based standards of beauty. Powerful. I feel like I've been trying to communicate this message for many years, never knowing how, never having anyone who would listen. Always fighting, (laughs) that is, until I dimmed my light and learned to accept people without changing their behaviour. This I wrote in 2016, some months before my institutionalisation for schizophrenia. Hourglass, an index of eight. Her image screens of ticked boxes. But your body should be something innately more sacred than meat cuts. It's your vessel, your vehicle, not your outcome. It's there to facilitate your own internal goodness to shine, not vice versa. Every unique aspect that reflects your internal landscape is beautiful, and any unattractive features are simply symptomatic of dysfunctional aspects of your life resulting from poor choices. These things are not you. You should not feel ashamed. Our environment is complex, and we need to forgive ourselves and others. For the errors we make or the error choices that are made for us in navigating it. Once we accept, then we can arrive at a place of unfiltered and boundless beauty. Routines, I find, helped my own process to acceptance, as it allowed me to confront the fact that there was no more I could reasonably do, and so then the real work of seeing my differences as gifts began. If they are not flaws by process of elimination, what else can they be? Definitely helped me to have some cheerleaders. Regardless, I think it's all time we treated ourselves and each other with a little more respect. When we give ourselves permission to consider our own attributes as sacred, we transcend our own meat cuts. Once we have the body beautiful, all movements stemming from that body must also be beautiful. Having faith in submitting ourselves to the grace of our flow is the true mechanism of elegance. Certainly, we feel the need of refining ourselves, but the beauty is not in the cutting. It's in you. Another fear-based aspect in our society is how news is disseminated. There are some theories that news is increasingly becoming a vehicle of fear-based propagandas by which powerful institutions, politicians, private interests are able to control the minds and emotions of the masses. This may or may not be true, when news production is decentralised, it is difficult for powerful interests to monopolise their content, but the Murdoch Empire has been increasingly scrutinised by ex-Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd for controlling the processes of politics in Australia as it has been performed in the last 10 years, where we have elected a succession of increasingly autocratic liberal governments into power. And what is news anyway? Curtis White describes it as the media making a yummy fetish of betrayed trust. We then consume it mostly passively because it is indistinguishable from our entertainment. News coverage of the newest, most awful thing happening in the world demanding our immediate worry generates a state of fear and then keeps us in it with weekly, daily, hourly and now minute-to-minute updates. The left is also a perpetrator of using outrage politics, jumping on and responding to every infraction with gleeful recriminations, spreading this negative news and existential fears to their entire database of contacts or through social media and seeing their donations jump as a result. It's fear-based, it's short-sighted, creates and then deepens a sense of mistrust and polarizes politics. News should be less about a constant stream of breaking, relentless white noise, and and instead should be about sense-making, like a melody weaving through sounds and tells us how to make sense of the world in a way to relieve our collective fear-based neuroses. I could go on and on and on about how fear-based structures manifest in our society. Authoritarian hierarchies of control in all their forms throughout society. Our education and job-seeking systems are embedded with fear, that is, fault-picking and competition against each other instead of collaboration with each other. Parenting methodologies that prioritise obedience over authenticity. Our determined blindness to exploitation, whatever its form. The partnering of NGOs with fossil fuel interests. The loss of alternative cultures spiritualities, languages and traditions, from the violence of first capitalism and then neoliberalism, the decline in family and the rise of single men, the reduction of spaces for intimacy building or havens to talk about or realign our values. And what are the impacts of this fear-based living? Well, addiction mostly We are primed to be addicted to social media, our phones, games, Netflix, alcohol, drugs, pornography, a part of the politics of distraction to keep us preoccupied in our own lives and therefore distracted from challenging decisions made by various powerful interests that might not be in our best interest. In short, these addictions keep us anaesthetised. Collectively in society, we have been conditioned to numb our emotions, and there are decreasing places where expression of emotion is seen to be appropriate, especially for men. Mass numbing is basically equivalent to mass neurosis, referring to stuck energy, and can cause us to lose our sense of connection and responsivity to threatening stimuli to our ethics, or it makes the definition of these ethics more stuck inflexible, lacking fluidity, and makes us view infractions to these ethics in a less forgiving manner. Numbing emotions done through mechanism of shame kills our ability to relate and forgive. It also puts a fear response in the way of us responding authentically, and it is authenticity which is necessary for true connection. The interesting thing about people numbing themselves is that it is the very content they are repressing that drives an instinct into the unconscious where it forms latent connections with even mild material and turns these things into complexes, that is, a cluster of neuroses around a set theme based on some aspect of reality that is unacceptable to us or our institutions. Porn is both a product and an exacerbation of these forces. Porn is an addiction, and like any other drug, you need a stronger dose to achieve the same high the more you use it. Lacking intimacy or a sense of love, the type of porn consumed by men has had increasingly extreme themes since the early 2000s. Double penetration, non-consensual sex, incest, teenage porn, domination, these have all become common themes in a consumption of sexuality. Our drive for sexuality is natural and is closely related to our drive for intimacy. Other worldwide trends that have been on the uptick since this time, plastic consumption, meat consumption, fossil fuel consumption, we have become destructive, relishing in the exploitation and deprivation of other beings and the planet herself. So have we just become worse people since this time? I would posit the hypothesis that it has been the last 20 years that we have begun to fully realise the existential implications of impending climate change and ecocide, and it has been these existential threats that have exponentially increased our vulnerability to fear-based stimuli. Because we care, we are paying more attention to our fears than ever before. So that's the first neurosis to bust. Fear is not caring, it's only fear. Further, in a hyper-Christian society, sexuality itself is shamed and a proper and healthy expression of it becomes increasingly difficult to realise and turning what is a natural drive into a shameful taboo. Eli Nash has a TEDx talk where he discusses his porn addiction. He acquaints the consumption of porn as bringing him into a place of mindfulness based flow where his fears are quietened. He likens the feeling of safety he gets from consuming images of sexuality as making him nostalgic for the nurturing he received at his grandfather, grandmother's house. Whores in History, written by Nikki Roberts and published in 1992, tells us that Western civilization's first prostitutes were, in fact, priestesses, and their sensuality a way of connecting man with the holy, a concrete example of our connections with one another. As you could probably guess, it was a popular religion at the time. Unfortunately, this type of sexuality, freedom, became shamed by incoming Christianity, which sought to control women's bodies as a way of centralising its own ideological power. So sexuality was shamed or otherwise controlled through institutions of marriage. Let's bring back the beautiful in our sexuality. Let's express ourselves more fully, more authentically, boldly appreciate the qualities we love in other people and bring back the intimacy and holiness of our physical connections with one another. Vedic karma Sutra is a tradition where the holiness of sexuality has persisted and is worth an exploration to better understand and experience what positive sexuality can be, let's turn to another experiment regarding deindividuation by Gergen, Gergen, and Barton in 1973 to better understand and explore this natural drive. In this experiment, anonymous participants were placed in either a well-lit control condition or dark room experimental condition. In the dark room, it was found that participants quickly developed a sense of intimacy. Ninety percent touched each other on purpose. Eighty percent felt sexual arousal as opposed to thirty percent in white condition. When this experiment was repeated, but the participants were told that they would meet up after thus no anonymity, participants were significantly less likely to explore and touch each other, and more likely to feel bored, less likely to introduce themselves, and more likely to feel panicky. One last example. The chimpanzee and the bonobo are both considered to be cousins to the human species. The chimpanzee is warlike, patriarchal and infanticidal, uh, an infanticide of a rival's baby is common. Multiple female chimpanzees are kept by the alpha male as a harem and he fends off many attacks from potential rivals on a daily basis. All of these elements are hallmarks of a food-based society in full swing. Our bonobo cousins, in contrast, are matriarchal. Decisions are made by a collective of female bonobos who are closely bonded to one another. Potential tensions and fights are resolved sexually and then forgotten. Mother-child relations are loving and those child bonobos are free to play and explore without fear. It is a love-based society in operation. We have a choice which society we want to become. If we choose love-based living, there's a few steps to reconnecting with ourselves and one another. The first is to recognize that our emotions and thoughts have energy. Everything has energy. Everything is composed out of molecules and molecules vibrate and seek equilibrium. Seek to understand these physical laws better. Also seek out alternative philosophies and traditions in helping you to understand reality as the inability to integrate alternative views is also fear-based. Raise your vibration, focusing on the feelings of energy flow within your body and using the seven chakras as a guide. Practice positive intentions towards others and focus on sending them that positive energy. Our beliefs create reality and so too do our fears. We can catch both positive and negative manifestations of this energy. Recently, I was on a trip to Melbourne and we, of course, swung by the CBD to check out Melbourne's famous street murals. One of the first things that struck us in landing in Melbourne CBD was the alarming amount of homeless people on the streets and the other was the heightened presence of police. Melbourne street art reflected this changing culture of fear. The murals were twisted, dark, inhuman and full of pain. One person's trauma is catching and when you institutionalise it, inescapable. Look after one another. A positive example of energy transmission is in music. Music is the sound of our emotions and can transport us into the places we need to go to help release and clean the fears we hang on to. Learn how to release using music and dance. It's one of the most powerful forms of connective energy there is. Recognise that other animals also operate in the language of music. It is universal. Tune in. Unnumb. Embrace your feelings of sadness, but don't get lost in them. Sadness, when honored and allowed to flow, enriches the beauty of the world and also alerts you to your possible impact on it. Become mindful of your impact on others and make a commitment to care, no matter the personal cost. Develop a sense of trust, our natural state, when not clouded by fear, is love. Follow your instincts. Recognize that you always have a choice and that that choice is between love and fear. Learn to make a love-based choice the majority of the time and forgive yourself when you don't or can't help but live in a scarcity-based thoughts and feelings. We all need downtime and love can be exhausting. Rely on others to take up the slack. Become simple. If it needs fear to work, it don't work. Fear-based processing is all complications. If I do this, that will happen, blah, blah, blah. Barr writes, 1996, about performing. It is easy to accept the word simplicity, but the quality is not easy to achieve. To be simple demands that you trust yourself. It demands that you are secure enough in your work as an actor or person to know that you are articulate, that the right thing and the real thing will happen and that the audience will get it. Learn to listen without judgment. Recognise that every aspect of reality has duality. Practice acceptance. Accept your past, other people, your future, responsibility, yourself, life, and happiness. When you go to therapy, stop sharing your fears and instead allow the therapist to share hope and transform your understandings. If they can't do this, stop wasting your money. Treat life like an intellectual puzzle. Where are the parts that you get stuck? What self-beliefs place a limit on your identity? Where is shame blocking you from realising your full potential? Identify your neuroses and systematically work to bust them. Don't be scared of analytical thinking. An analytical point of view should be used like a scalpel running a quick diagnosis on the elements of the situation and resolving them without disturbing the positive flow of energy. Think of it mathematically. Multiplying two positive numbers together creates a positive. Multiplying a positive and a negative number together, or vice versa, creates a negative. And then multiplying two negative numbers together creates a positive. So learn to identify and say no to something that is fear-based and resist it. Fuck up your life. Go on. Learn to identify something that is love-based and surrender to it even if at first you don't fully understand it. Practice my serenity prayer 2.0 which I just made up. Use coffee to change the fears you can't accept, wine to accept the love you shouldn't control and marijuana to know the difference. Seek alternative love-based structures that allow you to be your whole self. For example, Grassroots and community-based co-ops are a part of redesigning our economies around principles of care and sharing. And note, if this has at all helped you, please consider supporting me on GoFundMe by looking up a Linternet Reflections podcast. For obvious reasons, I find it difficult to secure income in a society where the amount of fear you have determines your access to well-paying and high-powered careers. I'd like to keep writing things that help to heal the world and appreciate any financial support you can give.